Amen. Let's take our Bible this morning. We're going to make our way to the book of Genesis, chapter number 22. Genesis 22. You may be thinking, well, what are we doing? I thought it was in Jonah. We are in Jonah. We'll be back there next week. Um, but I wanted to flesh out a few more things about the next section in Jonah. And uh, simultaneously, this particular passage was, was on my mind this week, so I decided to dig into it. And uh, I think there's a great message here with both Abraham and uh, but we'll see even bigger than beyond, bigger and beyond Abraham that comes all the way to us here today. And so uh, I've titled the message from Genesis 22, The View from Mount Moriah. The View from Mount Moriah. You've probably heard this text preached before. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've read it. And this is one passage of Scripture, I think, that is a great uh, Old Testament uh, gospel-focused passage. Now, all of the Old Testament points us to the gospel, doesn't it? Uh, but there are certain passages that reveal uh, specific details about it, and uh, this is one of them. And I love the life of Abraham. If you ever get to study it and, and study him, it is a wonderful study. But let us look at Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1 down through verse 14 as our text here this morning, and I pray that God's Word would minister to our hearts. The Bible says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is this day, said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, or as one, or as some may say, shall be seen. The view from Mount Moriah, I think, is magnificent here. There's so many things that we view within this passage of Scripture. But one thing I like to do is, you know, if I ever get the option or, or availability to do it, is to hike and maybe climb a hill or a mountainside. Maybe it's not that big, and, 
And sometimes if you like to hike and climb up a, a steep hill or a mountainside, it's maybe challenging, maybe uh, wearing you down physically. But once you get to the top, you've accomplished your goal, and now you get one of the great rewards of being able to take in the view. There was a church camp that uh, we used to go to years ago in Kentucky, and, and uh, one of my favorite activities was the hike that they had. You would start down at where the camp is, and you could actually see the cliffside way out in the distance. And we would start from the camp and walk that way. We would walk all the way through the trail. They had a trail built, and there were some steep climbing areas that you had to hold onto a rope and pull yourself up. But it's quite exerting, uh, especially if you're carrying a backpack full of water bottles for, full of, for, for everybody else, right? And, uh, and uh, that was usually my job. But you finally get to the top, and you get this reward of seeing the great view that is there. It's a cliffside, and they had it fenced off, thankfully. Because uh, if they didn't, knowing me, I'd probably trip and fall off the side, right? Uh, but uh, they, it was a beautiful view. You could see down to the camp. You could see where you started and where you are now. You could see all beyond. You could see the mountains of Tennessee. And, 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 and it's just a great wonder to behold the view of a mountaintop side. Now, we're looking here at a mountaintop experience when it comes to Abraham. We're looking at another view from a mountain in Israel, except this view is not the same kind of scene that we might think a mountaintop might bring to our sight. The mountain here is in the land of Moriah. It's the area in which Jerusalem is located. It's where eventually the temple would be erected by Solomon who built it there. We read in 2 Chronicles 3.1, just by reference, the Bible says Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So understand this area is very significant. It's not only significant because of the temple being built there and Abraham sacrificing his, or about to sacrifice his son there, who else knows why this area is significant? It is also on this same mountainside, generally speaking, that one day Christ Jesus would die for our sins, where the Son of God would be crucified. And so thus, in this text, we read that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, or as the King James translates it, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The place where Abraham once offered Isaac as a sacrifice And where the temple would one day stand would have a view beyond measure years later. And Abraham, here in this text, Abraham gets a glimpse into that view. He gets a glimpse into that view. He gets to see the picture of what God would do for sinners many, many years after Abraham was long dead and gone. And here's the privilege we have. We have the privilege of looking back at what Abraham saw, but also getting to look also back at the fulfillment of all of it. It's a wonderful thing that we have in the Scriptures to see. But there are several things here in this text I think would be beneficial for us today as Christians. I want you to see in our notes, number one this morning, I want you to see the test required of Abraham. There's a test here. The test that is required of Abraham. And just to give you some backdrop to Abraham, notice firstly God's calling for Abraham. God's calling for Abraham. We read in our text that begins with after these things. Well, after what things? The things that came before right now. <laughs> but it's pretty simple. But just in short, you could look at the life of Abraham. 
Look at the life of Abraham for a moment. And after these things, Abraham is at a certain point in his life where God is going to test him in a way he's never been tested before. We recall the call to Abraham from God and what God had promised Abraham. And this is important for the backdrop of this narrative in Genesis 22. If you go backwards to Genesis chapter 12, listen to what we read with the call of Abraham, or Abram as he's called in this text. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now I find this call is fascinating not only in its content, but also in the conduct of Abram. We see that this call is, understand that what God says here to Abram, it is foundational to the whole arc of redemptive history. It is foundational to the broad picture of what God planned to do and has done in Christ and continues to do. You see, Abram answered this call of God. He obeyed without question to leave his homeland, leave his family, even his pagan gods that he once knew in that land. You see, Abram believed in the promise of God to make him a great nation and that through his seed the Savior would come into the world, as we'll see shortly. But we see just a recognition of his faith in chapter 15 in our notes. Verse 6, the Bible says of Abraham that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. You'll find Abraham, that same text is quoted in Romans 4. The faith of Abraham, how faith is intertwined and and, and crucial to the Christian life. There is no Christian life without it, is seen in Abraham. And so Abraham understands he's been growing through these years. Because that's what God does in his children, doesn't he? God works to grow his children. You don't receive Christ and just stay at that same level. He's going to work in you. He's going to work on cultivating you, changing you, growing you. That is what we find in the life of Abraham. And that brings us to this point in his life. Understand Abraham in Genesis 22, he's not a new believer. He's had victories, he's had failures, he's grown, he's matured, he's been obedient to the call of God. And now in verse 1, notice that we read that God tested Abraham. Some translations may read this as tempted. Abraham, but don't get that confused, okay? It means tested. God does not tempt man with evil. That is a plain truth from the Scriptures. James 1 and verse 13 plainly tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So understand, if you're being tempted to do something you ought not to do, that ain't from God, you know who it's from. It's from the devil, and most certainly it's enticed by your flesh. But you think about this test for a moment. Have you ever been put to the test in something, really to the limit? To the limit. You know, in in high school basketball, we often did conditioning and off-season training. And the coaches would often make us do things, not just to say we did it, but to really actually test us. Sometimes we would have to 
hold a, hold a weight bar above our head for a certain amount of time. And uh, all, all the players were holding it above our head, and we're just watching each other. Who's going to give out first, right? You're really put to the test, to a breaking point. And, and what we find here is that God's putting Abraham to a test, not to break him, but to better him. And understand, Christian, that every test that you endure, that you're called to go through, is not meant to break you. It's always meant to better you in Christ Jesus. It is always for your good, but chiefly for the glory of God. And so this is what we see with Abraham. Abraham has a calling from God, but now we see, letter B, God's command to Abraham. Notice the specifics of the command to Abraham. Verse 2. He says to Abraham, take your son, your only son. That's significant. Pay attention to this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That also is significant. Whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now just, I want you to ponder Abraham, ponder this command coming to him, the details of what is being said here. God speaks from heaven to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him to the land of Moriah. And he doesn't say offer a lamb there with him. He says offer him there. Offer him there, your only son. Now, now you think about this. Abraham loves Isaac. How deep the love of a parent is for their child. Can you think of how much you love your own children? Imagine getting that request from God. As I look upon my precious children, Jubilee and David and Spurgeon, it's hard for me to fathom something happening to them. I don't know what I would do if something happened to them, but I do know if something happened, it would be in God's good providence, and I would have to follow him through that. But when you think about what do we love more than our own children? I don't love money more than my children. I don't know, love our home more than our children. I don't love anything in this world more, really, than my own children and my family. Now, you understand that yet God here, understand, think of Abraham's love for his own son, And this command comes to him. It's not a suggestion. It's not a questionable scenario here. This is a command from the Most High God who called him by name and says, go take your only son whom you love and you're going to offer him there as a sacrifice. Would that command be puzzling to any of us? Of course it would. It would be especially puzzling to Abraham considering that God promised that Abraham's seed would come through who? Isaac. It would come through Isaac. Isaac is the son who came through his barren wife, Sarah. And even though Sarah was barren beforehand, understand, when God promised they would have a son, Abraham showed his faith in believing that. If you read Romans chapter 4, here's a reference I'll take you to. There's a couple in the New Testament. I want to make connections for you. But Romans 4, verse 18 through 22 for a moment. Just read this with me. Listen to what Paul the Apostle recalls in the life of Abraham. Abraham's in the context here, and he says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was, a good, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. What do you find in that text regarding Abraham and the son God promised would come? We find Abraham had an unwavering faith in the promise of God. He had an unwavering faith in the promise of God, even though at the time he's having going to have Isaac, how old is Abraham? He's 100 years old. Genesis 21, 5. Isaac was a miracle child. A miracle child. And here God just tells Abraham, you're going to take that miracle child that I gave you, you're going to go sacrifice him. How would Abraham respond? Well, let's look at our text, verse 3 and 4. So Abraham said, Lord, are you sure? No. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You notice that Abraham here, I find it fascinating that there's not even a remark from Abraham. I mean, if it was me, I would have said, Lord, is this really what you want me to do? Or did you mean to say, take him with me to sacrifice a lamb there? I mean, what's going on here? I would have had those kind of thoughts. That's my human nature in me. But could you bear the test that Abraham is getting? Makes me wonder, too, if whether... Sarah knew what was going on. I don't know if she did. Maybe if she did, she would have, either she did and had the same faith as Abraham, or she didn't because she probably wouldn't be able to restrain herself. You're going to take my baby up there and do what? But could you imagine the test Abraham is getting? And here's the reality, Christian. I want you to understand this by way of application is that Our tests really don't even compare to his, and too often we doubt the hand of God in our tests. We're naturally doubters in what God's doing in our life and why he's doing it. But here's what Peter said to the suffering early church being tried in persecution. He said in 1 Peter 1, I believe it's 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found a result to in pray to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying the reason for their testing? It's a testing of their faith to the praise and glory of God. That's the same for all of us. That's what we see with Christians. That's what we see with Abraham. We see this command of, of Peter, but we see the, the response of Abraham. It stirs me. Why did Abraham just get up the next morning, load his animals, travel three days over to the land of Moriah? You imagine just three days' journey thinking about all that's about to happen. Why would he just do that without any question, without any reservation? Notice with me number two this morning. 
we see the trust resolved in Abraham. The trust resolved in Abraham. There's two things I want to point out to you regarding Abraham's trust and his faith here. I want you to see the first thing about his faith is that he believed in God's promise concerning his seed. He still believes this. He believes. He believed before Sarah had Isaac. He believes after Sarah's had Isaac. He believes now, even though he's commanded to go and offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Because remember what the plan of God was for Abraham and Isaac. God made a promise, we read earlier, that he would make Abraham a great nation and that his descendants would be more than could be numbered, just like the stars of heaven. Genesis 15.5 says this, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. That's God talking to Abraham. He goes, Look toward heaven and number the stars. Give them a number. If you're able to number them. And God says to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. Now we know even from today that man can't number the stars. They're innumerable. This promise is hard for a man to wrap his mind around. Nevertheless, you understand this is the promise of God to Abraham. And what should be the response to God's promises, no matter how impossible it may may appear to be, the response to God's promises always should be one thing, faith. Because God is a God who cannot lie, and He always fulfills what He promises. He never fails in what He sets out to do. Now, His response of faith is specifically regarding his son Isaac. Understand this, not his other offspring, because Abraham did have another son, right? His name was Ishmael. Ishmael. Ishmael was born out of a carnal, fleshly attempt to fulfill God's promise. In other words, Sarah's barren, so we're going to help God out. That didn't work out real well, did it? When you get ahead of God, understand you're only going to get into trouble. Genesis 21, 12, we read, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham knows that Isaac is his son. It's his legitimate son through his legitimate marriage. So Abraham, understand, he doesn't have in the back of his mind that if God wants to slay Isaac, then, well, maybe Ishmael will come back and he can just use Ishmael to be the, be the, be the vessel through which his seed would fulfill. He knows it's going to be Isaac. Abraham, in this very moment, believes that. So remember this, that what seems impossible to man is always possible to God, even though you don't understand it. But notice with me letter B, okay? Here's here's where you see more detail regarding his faith. Abraham still believes... And God's promise concerning the seed, and that's going to be through Isaac. But here's how and why. He believed in God's power concerning his son. God's power. What do you mean? How does God's power play into this sacrifice? And I want you to see the text. You ever read a text a hundred times, and then you read it the hundred and first time, and you see something that you didn't see before? Preachers do that too. We don't know everything. (laughs) We're learners. We're students. But you come down to verse number 4 and 5. And look at verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, remember he took two young men with him. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, what's he say to these men? He says, stay here. We're going to go over there and worship. I find it interesting that this is the first mention of worship in the Bible. In this passage. 
But what sticks out to you about this, what Abraham says? First thing that sticks out to me is worship. Even though he's commanded to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, this may seem absurd at first, but the big, big picture and the big story, we see it all come together. You see worship here. And it is an act of worship. Because Abraham is, is willingly going to offer what he loves most to God whom he loves supreme. That is worship, friends. You love God above all else, including your family. But here's what sticks out to me. The second thing. He says, I and the boy will what? Come again to you. He doesn't say, I'll come again. Because when you sacrifice anything, guess what? They're dead. They're not living anymore. He says, I and the lad will come again to you. Abraham is confident that Isaac will be returning with him. How can Abraham be so confident? How can he know Isaac would return with him if he's taking him to the slaughter? The answer comes to us in the New Testament. I want you to turn, to, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Many people today want to discount the Old Testament or only use the New Testament. You understand, you can't have one without the other. You must have all of it. You must have all of it. But notice Hebrews eleven seventeen, and through verse 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who he had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, notice verse 19, Abraham, he considered that God was able even to do what? Raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He didn't have to actually offer his son. Can you just imagine that for a moment? Abraham believes this, that... If I have to go up there and if I have to actually go through with this sacrifice, God promised my seed is going to come through him. God's going to raise him from the dead. He believed in the resurrection, friend. God's power concerning Isaac. And with this faith, understand, with this faith in this book, in Abraham, we see here in this book, we see that his faith turns directly into unwavering action. We read the exchange between Abraham and Isaac in verse 6 and 10. Look, look at this. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, just imagine this conversation between a father and son and what's about to happen. Isaac, his boy, says to his dad, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows that offerings require an animal. Where is it, Dad? Abraham says, he doesn't even tell Isaac, he doesn't say, you're it. He says, God will provide himself a lamb. He just knows God's got this whole situation covered. He's taking care of this. God has this whole situation covered. And in faith and in obedience, you understand that, that, that Abraham, he's still a human man. Now, I can't imagine him just feeling nothing. If this was me, I would be feeling turmoil and, 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 and sorrow about this, even though I believe what was going to happen was going to happen. 
So you understand this. What staggering faith and conviction we see. God will provide himself a lamb for the offering. And so you imagine this scene for a moment. Abraham builds the altar. And he takes his boy and he wraps him up and binds him. I think Isaac began to get the picture. And we also note that Isaac doesn't fight back. He allows it to happen. I think Isaac, there's some faith in Isaac here with what's going on. He holds him down. He he binds him up. He puts him on the altar. He takes the knife out and raises the knife. He's as close as you can get to making this come to pass. He raises his hand in the air with the knife in hand to slay his own son whom he loves. Can you imagine what that scene looked like? Then came at that moment in verse 11. It's two words. Abraham! Abraham! The angel of God calling to him at that exact precise moment that he was about to slay his son and stills his hand. Could you imagine, could you imagine perhaps the relief that God has intervened at this very moment? As a father, I would imagine I would want that relief. To be able to pause from such an action of having to go through with this. Then in verse 12, we read what happens. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy and do not do anything to him. For Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And did God already know that he feared and what Abraham would do? Absolutely. You understand it's, it's written like this for our benefit. Often we see that. God comes in the Garden of Eden and says, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. It's for Adam's benefit. It's for Abraham's benefit here. It's for our benefit reading it. But here's what I want you to see. Is that this journey to Mount Moriah wasn't just about a test to Abraham, though it was. It was also to show him something and us something. Long before the Savior ever comes into the world. He's given a glimpse, a view, a mountaintop view here that transcends time and history to the greatest offering and sacrifice that would ever be given. The sacrifice of God's own Son. Which brings me to number three. We see the truth revealed to Abraham, and herein we see the glorious gospel of Christ. Three things I want to point out about this wonderful thing, wonderful truth. I want you to see that through this whole scene, we see that there would be a supreme sacrifice given. A supreme or superior sacrifice would be given. You see, there on Mount Moriah is a picture, a picture of a greater sacrifice to come. And what sacrifice is that? It is the sacrifice of God's Son offered up by God God the Father. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Jews kill Jesus? Didn't the Romans nail Him to the cross? Oh, they did, and only by divine appointment. God the Father ordained and predestined this end for His Son so that His Son would be the atoning Savior of the sins of His people. But what a contrast we have here in Abraham and in what we read in the New Testament. Abraham was told to give up his only Son whom you love. What do we read in John chapter 3 and verse 16? One of the most noted verses in all of Scripture. We all probably have it memorized, maybe. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the parallel here? Between Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and God the Son in this gospel picture. You see, this is the supreme sacrifice. There can be no greater sacrifice than this one. Try to think of one. There's none that compares to this one. God offering His own Son. His own Son, God in flesh, the eternal Word born of flesh, born only to die for the sins of His people. We often think of how terrible the cross was for Jesus, and it was terrible. But have you ever thought about its impact on the Father too? You understand, the Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally coexisted in perfect harmony, unity, and glory forever. That exceeds what our mind can even wrap wrap around, right? Their eternal nature and their triune nature. Jesus prayed before His death, John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. When there was nothing. You and I don't even exist yet. The world doesn't exist yet. It's just God the Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect harmony and love and union together. Does God the Father love God the Son? You bet He does. His love for His Son is immeasurable. It is eternal. But there on Mount Calvary, which also is the same mountain region of Mount Moriah, there the Father had to offer up His own Son. And in offering up His Son, He had to exact judgment on His Son. This judgment on His Son was not because His Son had done something, but because we had done something. We have sinned against the Most High and are worthy of that judgment. You see the agony of God the Son in relation to God the Father here in, this, in, in, the, in the passage of Matthew 27-46. We read, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ there on the cross is bearing the guilt and shame and weight of God's wrath on sin. Further detail points this out. Go read Psalm 22. Though David is writing, he is prophesying about what's happening to Christ. Isaiah 53. You will see what Calvary meant to the Son, but here in Genesis 22, we get a little glimpse into the Father's view. See, Abraham got a view into the great agony that would come through the gospel work of redemption. A supreme sacrifice would be given, but notice letter B, with this supreme sacrifice, these are all one and the same, a substitutionary Savior would be offered. We see substitution happening in Genesis chapter 22. What did God bring to Abraham? We read in verse 13, and I love this. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Did God provide himself a lamb? Absolutely, he did. Some say this foreshadows Christ's crown of thorns. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I won't be dogmatic there. 
But one thing we know for certain is that this animal was offered as a burnt offering, and note these words, instead of his son. It was Isaac who was commanded to be offered, but instead of his son, the ram, the lamb is being offered. And what happens here on Mount Moriah, understand, it is a divinely painted picture of what would happen hundreds of years later that Jesus, God's Son, would be the substitute. He would be the one to take the place of His sinful people who deserve death, but instead would be set free and forgiven because He bore their judgment. 1 Peter 3.18 gives such a great substitutionary summary. Listen to what Peter says. He says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous. Which one are you and I? We're the unrighteous. Christ is the righteous. Why did He do this? That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you understand that you and I, every one of us in this building, we are wretched, wicked, sinful people. We have no clue how sinful we actually are. But God does. And He exacted that amount of sin for His people upon His own Son that day as a substitutionary sacrifice. He took the place of His people so that they could be set free. Isaiah 53.5 details this hundreds of years earlier as well. Speaking of Christ, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Look at the language here. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Christian, Christ suffered as no man has ever suffered. Christ suffered in a way beyond what your feeble mind can comprehend. And He did that all for you who believe in Him. He willingly laid down His life to pay for the sins of His people, to pay the debt you and I could not pay. He endured hell on that cross so that His people who believe would not have to endure it for all of eternity. You understand today that Christ, in this picture, we see it all through the Scriptures, Christ alone is Savior and Lord. And if your faith is resting in anything or anyone other than Christ alone as Savior and Lord, you have not known Him. It is Christ alone. It is not the church you trust in. It is not heritage or tradition or your works, your religiousness. It is Christ and His sacrifice alone that you must trust in. You must see His sacrifice as for you because of your sin. You understand that God provided a lamb as a substitute for Abraham. That ram came. But guess what, friend? He provided it for His people as well. As Jesus began His ministry and came near the waters of Jordan, what did John the Baptist declare before all those there? He said, Behold! What did He call Jesus? 
Lamb of God. And what's this Lamb of God going to do? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He alone is the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Letter C, I want you to letter C. I want you to see lastly that through this big picture of things, we see that this special seed would prevail. God reminds him of this promise once again. Another awesome truth. He rehearses it afresh in verse 15 through 19. Look at this with me just for a moment. And then make your way to Galatians. So I'll make the final connection. Galatians 3, 7 and 9. But in verse 15 through 19 of Genesis 22, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. You notice that he refreshes this promise and once again says, once again says that all nations of the earth shall be blessed through his offspring. How is that possible? How is that even possible? Because God is not speaking of Abraham's physical offspring, although there is an application there. He's speaking about the one and true seed who would come, Christ Jesus, and thereby make all those who believe in him the offspring of Abraham. Look with me at Galatians as we look at a final text, final connecting point to this narrative, this account, God's redemptive plan. Galatians chapter number 3. And look with me at verse 7 through verse 9. Notice what the Apostle Paul is writing. You'll find much of this throughout the whole of Galatians, but just to point this out briefly. He says to these Galatians, he says, Know this then, that those of faith who are of the sons, then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You understand that Abraham's given the big picture long before it was ever realized. That salvation, the blessing upon God's people, it would not be limited to one group, but it would spread to all nations through faith in Christ alone. And thus in verse 29, what do you read? He says to them, if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It all connects together. doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. If you're in Christ, you're a son of Abraham. You are part of that promise that God promised him long ago. We used to sing a kid's song when we were young. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Might have to sing a special. The only one I know I can sing. You understand, that applies to every one of God's believers. 
all of his believers receive the promise of eternal life in God's kingdom, they are the innumerable seed of whom Christ has redeemed. And what does that show us? That shows us that those whom God is saving is beyond number. Beyond number. God has and is continuing to fulfill this great promise of gathering in all of his elect from the four corners of the earth, from every nation, bringing them to Christ through faith alone as the gospel goes forth in power. As we look at the view from Mount Moriah, it's a lot better than the view I had at church camp. (laughs) I love the view from Mount Moriah. We see a man's faith and obedience to a very serious and hard test. It's a view of redemption that would come through God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you today that the response from every single one of us to whatever application here is, our response today is to this text, faith. Faith. Whether you're going through a test, like God does, He gave to Abraham, guess what your response is? Faith. When you look at the gospel and you see what Christ has done and what's been revealed here, guess what your response should be? Faith. Trust. If you're going through a test, Christian, trust God because he's God over it. If you've never been saved and you begin to see here today that Christ has died for you, he died because of your sin, look to him by faith. Trust in him because through faith alone you're justified in Christ alone. Let us stand to our feet as we sing a closing song. Father, we bow before you and thank you for this great passage of scripture that you have given to us. I'm so thankful that you have given us your word, how powerful, how rich it is, conveying truth to us. So many lessons we learned from this passage about Abraham, and many more we could probably bring out that even I didn't bring out. Lord, my prayer is that your word would minister to our hearts according to your will. I don't know the hearts of anyone in this building. I don't know who's lost and who's saved. I don't know who is on a mountaintop or in a valley. The only thing I know is that your word and your grace are sufficient for us. And it's my prayer, Lord, that you administer to each of us with accordance to the needs that we have. Pray it in Jesus' name.